Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to OnScript. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. I hope you're doing well. Uh, I want to just start out by giving a special thanks to Jason Stark for producing this episode. We have a team of new producers here at OnScript. Ed Hetke has uh, retired from producing the show, and we're so grateful for his five years of service in helping bring you both OnScript and Biblical World, our other podcasts. So um, thanks so much to Ed and Jason. Thanks for the work that you're doing uh, with OnScript now. Um, So without further ado, we'll get on to the episode. Hope you enjoy this one where uh, Chris Tilling interviews Marty Folsom. So welcome to a new episode of On Script. Today, I'm delighted to introduce uh, Marty Folsom, who is Professor of Theology and Biblical Studies and has been for 30 years, um, uh, both in New Zealand and Seattle. He has also been a therapist for 24 years, and he is the author of the Face-to-Face Trilogy on Relational Theology, which which emphasizes personal relationship, hence face-to-face language. Now, apart from authoring numerous articles, he is now the author of Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics for Everyone, with various volumes to follow. Uh, We will explore his first volume today, And I've got to say this about Marty. He is the kind of theologian and person I aspire to be. His gentleness is evident to all as you encounter him in the halls of SBL AAR. And it's a real pleasure to have you on OnScript today. Welcome to the show, Marty. It's a delight to be here with you, Chris, and with everyone else. Well, maybe we can just um, ask you as a way of framing things, you know, tell us a bit about your background, your story. Um, and your interest in, in Karl Barth and just generally. So I am the fourth of six kids, uh, which means I have a lot of siblings who shape the nature of what it means to be somebody who was not naturally a f- uh, leader, but learned the wisdom of listening and growing up in a family, one must learn what it means to have relationships. But my dad was a the son of a Presbyterian minister who became a science teacher and ultimately talked about converting out of Christianity. For me, what that did is it made my life one of inquiring. He was an inquiring mind. And so my mind has always inquired for something that is true. And in many ways, my life's work has been answering my my dad. My mom, on the other hand, um, is one of those deep heart Christians loves people, people love her. And so she gave me a sense of a life of what it looks like to be relationally connected. Between the two, they formed in me somebody who loves relationships and loves to inquire. So the nature of growing up um, in a fairly rural setting in Washington State meant that I was somebody who loved the out of doors, but also came to love learning. And when I was a teenager, I was exposed to what I would call the fun side of Christianity. I'd gone to church, but it was basically pretty boring, and it was an hour drive to church. So in those years, I began to recognize that the Christianity that I had been 
accustomed to to that point was a Christianity that was far away in your head and didn't really engage life. But as I engaged those who really loved Jesus and loved life, I began to see that there was something more that was missing. The term that came to me as I went along was relationships. The nature of what it means to be a Christian is more about relationships than just having a set of doctrines or belief systems that one argues for. So from, from those really early years, I went on a, about a 20-year journey of education, attempting to ask the question, what does it look like to think about Christianity as being primarily about relationships? So you know, in the end of that, to say in a very simple nutshell, God exists in a relationship, all God does for the purpose of relationships, what it means for the church to do what it's supposed to do is to facilitate relationship with God and one another. And in fact, to grow as persons is a task of growing as a person, not intellectually merely or emotionally, but in the dynamic of what it means to be in relationships. Now, I don't know about you, but I missed the class on building relationships in schools I went along. It basically wasn't there. Uh, to say it's part of the educational system that is missing is to say it is most foundational that we learn what it means to know and be known by other persons and by God, and that the nature of what it looks like for me in my journey has been that when I'm a therapist, when I'm a theologian, when I'm an author, whatever it is that I'm doing, it is all a function of this discovery of the fulfillment of what it means to be a human being and understanding how relationships work and understanding really who is this God who we're dealing with. So I did do uh, multiple bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, finally went to New Zealand, did a doctorate with Alan Torrance and Douglas Campbell, of much belovedness, both of them, uh, really answering the question of what does it mean to be a free person? If the gospel is really about setting us free, what does it mean to be a free person? So uh, for me, that includes what I do in therapy, but also what I do as a gardener and as a cook, um, which I'm the primary cook in our household. Uh, what it means to be on a bicycle or in a kayak out in Puget Sound or on a lake. I mean, it's all part of the question, what does it mean to be a free person in this world that we are created? So the expressions of my life that I live in now as an author are all to say, I have learned much and there is somewhat of a stewardship that has been granted to me that I now have the opportunity to take that, extend that to other people and, in the form of books. The themes that we'll talk about today, the nature of what follows from my writing, is that I'm a person who, in many ways, uh, like many people in the modern age, have a hard time being heard. <laughs> I've worked as an adjunct in multiple schools, which has exposed me to, I've been on a faculty at a Roman Catholic school, a Free Methodist school, Pentecostal schools, Lutheran schools. So I've listened much and had the opportunity to dialogue in all those ways. Um, but books seem to provide, and also dialogues like this, provide something beyond that, where we're entering into the conversations that become formative and transformative in our lives. So where I am at this point in life, um, I'm 64 years old, and some people say, are you ready to retire? And I, I generally say, 
I feel like I am launching. I feel like what God has called me to in all these years, even my teaching over the years has been a preparation of learning for what comes next. And writing, speaking, engaging in dialogues like this are fundamental to who it is that uh, the, that I'm being called to be in this time. Um, and that this is not an end. It's an exciting beginning. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, so relational theology, of course, is something you unpack in in a lot of depth in in your three-volume work, face-to-face. -face. And, and you've already summarized, I think, um, the dynamics of what that means for you. And it shapes, doesn't it, your presentation of, of um, the church dogmatics. So you write that uh, the beginning, that Bart never intended us to have mastery of his text. He wanted us to have an encounter with the personal God revealed in the living word Jesus. And I think this really does summarize your contribution in many ways to um, an account of the church dogmatics, uniquely so. Now, let me ask you then, why the church dogmatics? You know, what is it about these texts that you wanted to communicate? So the church dogmatics was one of the places that I went in my doctoral work. I looked at John McMurray, who's a Scottish philosopher of the person, all about relationships, John Zulus, who was a Orthodox theologian, still alive, who writes about the Trinity being in communion or relationship. But Karl Barth and the Church Dogmatics was really my primary dialogue partner. What is it about Karl Barth? And so to say, when I think about Albert Einstein and what he did in transforming the nature of how we think about science, uh, as T.F. Torrance would say, Newton put the world into boxes. And so everything we do in thinking about the world, persons, is to put people into boxes. But Einstein recognized that the nature of understanding reality is about seeing the dynamic of how things relate to one another. And Karl Barth in his Church Dogmatics is a reorientation away from a boxes, put people, put God in boxes kind of mentality which to say theology is often described as talk about God, which usually means putting God in a series of boxes. So when God's been sliced, diced, and put in all these boxes, the question, you know, well, when you have left of a living God, you've got a bunch of words with the parts that were all disassembled and now lay on the page before you. Um, to say, what if theology is about letting God talk? And so to say the church dogmatics proceed from the assumption God speaks, duistics it. So if, if we move in a direction of listeners and responders to God and then to one another, I think we're listening to what it is that the whole of the dogmatics are attempting to, uh, to unpack. And so the church dogmatics is huge, but its basic theses are simple. Um, God wants to be known. God has made God's self known in the person of Jesus Christ. God, by his Holy Spirit, calls us to be communities of people who learn to listen well, to speak well, to attend to one another in this world that is natural. And we're introducing the later themes of natural theology here. But we have to begin in the right place and not just begin with the natural world to know God, but to begin with God to understand the natural world. And as I've said, I love gardening, I love hiking, I love I love the natural world. And I think to read Bart well and to listen to Mozart with him is to say, once you understand the creator God and the delight that that he takes in creating, shaping, and bringing us to be involved in this world, 
as companions with him, then all of the dissonance of what the church is about is realigned, and we become those who are able to be brought into what I might call the symphonic dynamic of being involved in a grand masterpiece of life. And the freedom we have to be, be, be persons is to show up as who we are, as those loved, known, um, brought home into the life of the one who made us and intends us to live with all the fullness of what that means. And that that has very practical implications, like having people over for a meal and walking around the garden with them, that there's something of the delight of that that is an echo of theology that the church dogmatics wants to bring us into. Uh, the fact that Karl Barth died before he got to what I think may have been the most interesting of that, what does redemption look like? And to say redemption isn't just kind of putting a Band-Aid on the wound. To say, in the end, there is this living as people who have discovered so completely the love that is for us and with us that uh, the dogmatics want to leave us uh, playful, joyful. You know, all, many of the quotes that people uh, put out there that Bart brought out into the fore is that we are called to be free, joyful, playful, loving, living beings. And so, my sense is that's where the dogmatics and the full grandeur of them wants to take us. And so for me, not only the fact that it is sometimes called the greatest theological work in the 20th century, and maybe even since Calvin or Thomas Aquinas, depending upon whether you're talking to a Catholic or a Protestant. Um, so the dogmatics became for me a focal text, hard to understand, that needed to have somebody get at the essence of what's there. And there are friends who have said, I just wish that Karl Barth had had a better editor to reduce it a great inside. And so the size of the dogmatics, Barth himself laughed at. You know, the angels will say, there goes Karl Barth with his wheelbarrow full of books, basically. And so he could chuckle at himself at the, the largeness of it, but it still lays out for me and for others. How do we get the message of what Bart is saying to a, to a generation who had basically turned Christianity into a mental exercise of doctrine and gatherings together where somebody speaks and everybody else listens other than singing a few songs, but really misses the dynamic, dynamic of what you would call a beautiful, hospitable meal together where you walk out transformed because you know one who has loved you and you know that you have become known. And so that's my sense of the dogmatics should do for us. Um, the one other piece in there of, of my thinking in the whole process is I occasionally use Rick Steves' tour guides. He has books and videos to take you to a place you haven't been, to give you the highlights of what to see there and how to experience it, how to be exposed to a culture that is maybe alien to you, which I'm leaving for France in a few weeks here. And so... Rick Steves is on my mind. So I wanted to design a book that was like a tour guide to take people into a land where God is alive and vibrant and present like they may have never seen, that has the feel of a tour guide, that you're being directed to the fullest possible experience to have your own being changed because you are there. So you're not just seeing sights or hearing words, but that you are, in fact, being addressed and being invited into a space hospitably that is truly transformative. So that's, that is what my 
goal is and why the dogmatics were so important for me. Wonderful. Yeah, and I've, I must resonate with with your sense of the dogmatics. I mean, my friend Lincoln Harvey always used to say that reading the church dogmatics is a theological education in itself for the whole of life. Um, now, you begin um, your your account by by zooming right out. You know, you want to give broad brushstroke summaries of church dogmatics. And I'm, I must say, when I'm lecturing on New Testament texts, I like to do the same. I like to give broad brushstroke summaries and then slowly move in so that you can spot some dynamics that you might otherwise miss. And I love this about your book. What you do is so helpful. It's a brilliant resource, not just for teachers, but um, for readers. You begin by looking at the church dogmatics from outer space with the word Jesus, then Earth's orbit, then to 40,000 feet and so on, progressively getting closer until you're walking through the highways and byways of all 14 volumes, 17 chapters and 78 paragraphs. Now, your summary for 40,000 feet runs as follows. I just wanted to read this out because I, I love this. So um, this is from page eight. The science of God explores the revealed God through an encounter with the actuality of God made known in Jesus Christ. The person spotlighted in scripture as the one who comes to restore our relation to his Father and the Spirit, concretely knowing the creative work of this triune God. Jesus, as the restoring word, has transformed and is still transforming all creation through personal connection and fulfillment. So there you go. There is a one-sentence summary of the church dogmatics. Now, I really, I just wanted to ask you a question for this. You know, given the way that you have so rightly highlighted the the primacy of the revelation of God in Jesus Christ in the church dogmatics, um, what difference? I am a biblical scholar, as you know, but what difference does this make? Do you think? to reading the Bible as scripture, this great insight that you've summarized so right. well. So the whole dynamic of the living word, the written word, scripture, and the word that is preached, or I like to say preached or lived, I think that the living our life is really part of that third word within Karl Barth, that if we're, if we're reading scripture properly, we are attuning our ears to the living word who, who wants to speak to us. Um, if you read the Bible as a set of statements about God, you very quickly make Jesus um, a person sitting in the room some distance away on a chair, and we're talking but not listening very well. So to to really listen in a way that I think Karl Barth invites us to is to hear Scripture in such a way that it it virtually becomes direct address. What I mean by direct address is that this is another one of my tasks before I die, is to actually take the text of Scripture and to put it in the mouth of the persons of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So to just uh, an example of that, if you take Ephesians 1, starting at verse 4, um, you know, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly places. But if you say, well, if you put it in the mouth of the Father, I am the Father of my Son, Jesus Christ, and I have blessed you in the heavenly places through him. And in the mouth of Jesus, you know, blessed be my Father who's blessed you in the heavenly places through me. And then go on from there. Or the Spirit, the Spirit who is the one who inspires, gives Scripture its life, you know, 
blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed you in the heavenly places. It it puts the Spirit in the place of what the Spirit has done in giving us Scripture. So for me, Karl Barth in the dogmatics is aligning us to the three persons of the Trinity who give us this full-orbed sense of the vocal God, who by attuning us to Scripture as the speaking of God, moves us out of what T.F. Torrance calls the classic dualism of either we're in our heads or we're looking for a practical thing. So it's the theory and practice kind of dichotomy. If we, if we think that it's all in our thinking, our theory, the academy, then it seems to never go into practice. And if we go for practices, which I've seen a number of schools who have become so practically oriented in training pastors, even in reading the word, that it's, it's to preach the word so people like your sermon, that it misses all of what would be the dimension of thinking that would give a rich theology to inform that. And I say both of those are really missing the point. The, the science that Bart is dealing with is the science of the personal. In knowing the person, you are engaged in all the thinking of the world of who God is as God reveals God's self. It entails the intentions of God, the way that God has acted in such a way that all that theory takes on flesh. And it also becomes very practical because Jesus lived and walked and spoke and engaged people and sat with them with meals and created communities um, who would sit and listen and love one another and engage the marginalized and bring them into a life of knowing and being known and being valued. So if we say, when we engage the science of the personal rather than the, the science of theory or the science of practice, the science of the personal brings it all together in a dynamic relation to reality that is personal, created by a person, sustained by a person, given meaning by a person, and so the very nature of Scripture then is that touch point we are, where we are brought into the dynamic of personal knowing and being known. We are addressed, we are invited to respond in word, in thought, in deed, without breaking everything apart into these classic dualisms of the West. And so for me, the nature of Scripture as Karl Barth's focal point you can never just see scripture without seeing the person who's speaking through that scripture. And so therefore the dynamic of the speaking God, the living word, um, brings that out. And if we just think, um, I find in the reading groups I'm a part of, if we just think of the third point proclamation to just be what happens on a Sunday morning from the pulpit, it's just way more narrow than I think that we need to focus and so to say, you know, the nature of somebody who learns to be profoundly hospitable to their neighbors, um, they are preaching the word in action in a way that I think is consistent with, I have heard Jesus, I read scripture and Jesus going and visiting the neighbor, and now I'm being that personal being that is the echo, the reflection, the ongoing life that is presented there. Scripture is becoming alive as I participate in what it's doing in me, through me, as the Spirit then guides me in what it looks like to live out in loving ways the life that is portrayed there. Beautiful. Now, I just briefly reflect on the structure of the whole book. So, you know, after, after zooming in from the outer space into the highways and the byways of church dogmatics, you know, slowly moving in uh, to a closer look, 
you then trawl through each of the paragraphs, and through each of these chapters, where they're all consistently structured with these headings, focus statement, text, summary, insight for pastors, and so on. Could you just you know walk us through that, the rationale for that, what, what you hope that will achieve? Yeah, the nature of, again, the, a tour guide at some level for me was a helpful beginning. Uh, tour guides don't have quite what I have with the focus statement, where I really wanted to invite people into a sense of a story that they're entering into. So that idea of, of being positioned in outer space and telling the story, which again, we've, we have people these days going into outer space, coming back and telling the story of these moments of being in outer space and how profound it is to see the world and space from that perspective. So to enter into the story through the focus statements is to be brought into the story of what it is that Bart is doing as, in a sense, a tour guide into a dynamic living life with the God who speaks and then is going to be inviting us to be those who live in ways that resonate with and are consistent. Now, I can say, you know, we need to be resonant with the scripture, but people often say, okay, you know, what does that look like? So I, I had to use the focus statement, and this will continue to develop in the, in the following volumes. And just to say, in this first one, it's really entering into a landscape where you begin to be able to interpret the landscape and the dogmatics themselves is a landscape that um, one could just look at a picture of a mountain and go, wow, that's beautiful. But when you stop and say, you know, this, this mountain was created as a volcano and it took, you know, years of these dramatic events of the building up of this. And you can imagine the overflow of lava here. And then there was an age of cooling and the snow came and shaped these glaciers, which are now sculpting this mountain into the beauty but you know, we don't just look at it. Let's go play on this mountain. <laughs> Let's ask, you know, how do we safely take people with us onto this mountain? And I now we're doing what I think the dogmatics want to do. So the focus statement was really an invitation to step-by-step step move people into the experience of the dynamic of the God who creates and who brings us into relationship. And that in understanding the landscape, uh, we understand it so much better. My friend Kerry Magruder, who's a professor of the history of science, said, we can look at a, a hillside and say, well, that's amazing, particularly our national parks. But when you have a geologist there who says, let me tell you how this was formed, the whole place comes alive and you start to see eons in history. And you also see what's happening right now is someplace like Bryce Canyon erodes every year. It's changing. It's, you know, this aren't just fix things in time. We're living in a dynamic environment. So the structure of what I walk people, people through is to live in the dynamic of the dogmatics so that we might live in the dynamic of the moment. So as we then go through just a basic summary of you know, what's going on in the text to the people, um, sometimes if you just say, now, in this concert or in this play, listen for this theme and then you hear so much better. It's like, oh, I, I think I would have missed that if you hadn't have said this word gets at or this phrase or this image helps to develop something that at the end, uh, you will see that it all made sense rotating around that and opening up something that you otherwise might not have seen. So the summary does that. Um, and as I sit every day and read through, you know, if I read through a page, I, I try and stop and go, 
what captures the point of what he's making here? And how do I just help somebody get that? They can come back and read all of the other kinds of things that are going on. But if they get the point, all the rest will make sense. So I want to I want to give that. Am I going to miss things? Yep. In some of the reading groups, I'll have somebody say, yeah, Marty, I think you missed this one point. And it's like, yeah, that was 10 pages taken down to one sentence. I probably missed something that could be valuable there. But I also think I gave not just breadcrumbs on a trail. I gave signposts that help people to walk through this material in ways that they're going to see and experience in a way that otherwise would not have been possible. And then the sections at the end, insights for pastors, insights for the church, insights for theologians. These are things that I wished when I was first reading through that somebody would just say, now, the real key thing for you to develop your thinking here that Karl Barth wants you to get is this point. If you just understand that getting people to church isn't just so they have a really exciting experience, but that in meeting the actual living Jesus and knowing that they are known by this one, that something's going to happen there. That if you if you could have people walk out of your church not saying, great sermon, Pastor, but, you know, I think I heard Jesus speak to me today, and I think it's going to change my life, because what I heard about who he is to me and what he's doing in my world this is life transforming. So that's what I try and do in those insight sections. And then the very last thing there, clarifying questions. I have this little statement, you know, clarify by distinction. That we are often, we become most clear with something when it's like, I've always thought this, but now I see that this is a better way to think. So with that final statement, it's this is the traditional way that I think people do think about this. And this is the new way that Karl Barth would like us to think about this. And so it just leaves the person clarifying a new way of thinking. And it leaves you in a place where hopefully you're recognizing this is metanoia, which means change of mind. And the metanoia happens because we, we do meet this living, speaking, engaging one. And it's going to require us to get over our comfortable way of having definitions and descriptions that keep us distant and to really live in the dialogue with this person so that we are now living in the science of the personal. That's wonderful. Now, <clears throat> do you think that there are going to be surprises in store, whether it be for wannabe readers and beginners or, or even for experts? And if so, what are those surprises? So for experts, the surprises might be that all of this is so practical. Um, I go to the Karl Barth conferences almost every year, and there are fine points of, you know, Barth's understanding of election or his engagement with Luther or some other point that most people go, yeah, that's not really my thing. Those, those kind of arguments that are discussed in the seminaries don't really engage. So I think that for the, for the new reader to say, Wow, it's it's like Karl Barth actually lived a real life with real people. And if people read his sermons to prisoners, there's a sense here, wow, it does seem like he understood the challenges of for those people, maybe the most difficult kind of life. But he's somebody who who didn't just live in the clouds, he really understood what it meant to 
live in a place, I mean, Switzerland's a beautiful place. He did spend time in Germany in some very difficult times. And he really, he engaged in the lives of people and corrected Hitler for one, and the church generally, by bringing them back to the living person of Jesus. And so for, for people who think Karl Barth is just about high and lofty theological themes, I think they'll find that Karl Barth is very interested in the dynamics of what it means to be persons who are created by God to live in real life relationships with God and with one another, and that that all actually is a unified way of being. Um, and so we don't just take time out of life to go to church and hope that that'll somehow beef us up to live this other life, but that there is an integrated sense that our theology really informs the joyfulness and playfulness and, in a sense, the musicality of life, which CD2, when we when we get to that church dogmatics, I, I say CD is a shortening there, follows the theme of music. So if I followed coming into the playful landscape in volume one, it is going to be God's self-revelation in forms of musicality, symphonic, and inviting us to join into that symphony. And so for readers who are new to Karl Barth, they're going to find that there is an invitational sense into real life living with God and one another that I, they may not have expected. And it's the same surprise, I think, for the experts to say, we spend so much time debating a word or a concept that maybe we aren't sitting back and saying, wow, there's a whole landscape here that maybe we've missed. And so to be able to say the church dogmatics, which again, the word church and dogmatics, I have neighbors who sometimes say, so what are you writing about? Uh, church dogmatics to say, wow, that sounds boring. <laughs> and it's because in their mind, church is a place that they go and get talked to that has traditions that they may not understand. And so it just seems like a foreign universe rather than this is the family of those who are beloved of the God who made them, who invites them to come home in ways of honest, open, living of life with one another, knowing and being known face to face. Um, that's, that's what I mean by church and what I think Karl Barth means by church. And dogmatics isn't being dogmatic or opinionated. Dogmatics is the life of investigation. It's the proceeding with wonder in such a way that what we know becomes an opening for all that may be known in that discovery process. Um, I don't like the word heuristic because we don't use it enough to know what it means, but heuristic means, I think, engaged in a journey of discovery. And so if church dogmatics is being engaged as a community, a family of people in this discovery of what life is meaningfully really about, um, now, now I think we're in a place where surprise is possible at every turn. And we, we might get surprised that people still go to churches that haven't really engaged the dynamics of life in ways that I think Karl Barth really wanted to engage. So the surprise is in the dimension of, of the real life engagement and not merely looking for practices or merely looking for better thoughts or arguments, but that it, it is really a call to what it means to be free persons. I mean, this is why my, my doctoral work is so important for me, that freedom is not freedom from other people or being told what to do, free for the weekend from our work, but freedom is really being for 
the one who is for us. Freedom is a way of being with and for those who are for us. So if if we read the whole of the dogmatics, looking for the dynamic of freedom as the fulfillment of our ways of relating, it it's surprised at every turn. And Karl Barth, when he visited the, the U.S., said, what America needs to discover or rediscover is what freedom really means. So even in his own thinking as a theologian in the American context, he recognized that the God who is for us and with us, if you say freedom is learning that God is for us and with us, and that as we live that way for and with other people, and that's what our church communities look like, both within the community, but also with the neighbors, um, there is something that is surprising what happens when that becomes the script of our life. And so I think that that is surprising both to the experts and to the beginner, just how much life and relationship is present in it all. And of course, it's my interest. So I will confess that Karl Barth never had particularly a mountain, uh, the idea of coming in. Um, it is my life story of discovery being brought in, though there is a mountain in New Zealand called Mount Bart, named after Karl Barth. So, I mean, that was not insignificant for me that that, that was a, a I didn't know igniting that. Okay. piece in my thinking. But also this, this sense that um, we, we are educated in all of these disciplines as we go through our school years, and we virtually never get a class on relationships, including at church. You know, we, we study the Bible as books, and we, you know, we study original context and all that. But I don't think that we understand the language of relationships well enough to do the translation work. And my, my real hope is that beginners and experts will recognize just how powerful this is in a way that is like Einstein. It's what we've been missing all along. And once you start getting that, everything becomes integrated and meaningful, and you delight in the particularity of everything. You're not trying to make everything, as Jeremy Bigby says, everything doesn't have to be vanilla. You discover ice cream can be all these different flavors and on different days and in different contexts, it can be wonderful too. And people do things with ice cream that, uh, that make it wonderful. But the sharing of ice cream with other people, you know, what it would look like if we had a ministry of sharing ice cream with people? Um, so the church dogmatics for me is just, it's all gift. And it's all calling us to gift. And I think that we are so used to trying to fit things in to make sense of them that we lose the gift dimension. And grace is the word that maybe Bart uses most of that. But it is all living out of the sense of the life of having been gifted, being then able to gift others. Beautiful. I, I, I'm in a Bart reading group myself, and I've, I've got to concur, you know, with working through um, uh, Church Dogmatics Volume 3. There's a sense in which you almost feel like you're being preached at. Yeah, no, no, that's not even the right way of putting it. It's too abstract. Um, hmm. It reaches into your life, doesn't it? In, in with immediacy that it's. Um, so yeah, abs absolutely. And, and and just briefly on that, my theme for the whole of Volume Three is hospitality. Oh, okay. Wonderful. That creates a world within which we are intended to both to be the those who are God is hospitable too, but also to become hospitable to God yeah. and to one another. Yeah. And so to really see even male and female as as God creating us to be hospitable to one another just opens up this sense of the otherness and the freedom of living within that and what it means um, to see God's time and space and interaction as the creator 
creating a hospitable world in which the fullness of our being is to respond and live in extensions of that. So anyway, you just triggered my thinking there. Well, I was going to ask you a little bit about freedom, um, but I'm aware of the time. But it is such an important issue. Unevangelized notions of freedom have infected the church for worse. Um, And I think um, reading your book will, will help people evangelize their notions of what freedom means, the divine freedom that is a gift. But um, but I wanted instead to jump quickly to the quickfire round. Now, do you know what the quickfire round is? The quickfire means I'm supposed to give short answers? Exactly. Short, off-the-cuff answers. The first thing that comes into your mind. <clears throat> so these are very much off script. So what are your hobbies? My hobbies are... Cooking. Some people have say I'm a gourmet chef. I haven't been trained as that, but a chef. Um, I I love gardening. I have seven theme gardens in the house that we're wow. selling here now. Um, so I love a variety of gardening. Um, obviously collecting books. I have a library. Mm. It's being reduced a little bit, but somewhere around sixteen thousand books. Wow. Um, so the gathering of those things and having them delight me and others, um, and then just being on bicycles, hiking, um kayaking, things that don't require a, a gas engine that are the enjoyment of nature. Those are those are the probably my the closest to hobbies. I also do write poetry. I'm actually working on another five line work on the Psalms. Wow. We won't go into all that. And it ha- it has a profoundly dynamic creative dimension to it in terms of it has poetic dimension, several kinds of poetry, as well as journeys through the Psalms with Jesus and all that. So anyway, that's all um, the creativity of my life is part of the hobby of my life. It's a way of delighting um, in the sharing of things in ways that uh, are out of the ordinary. Well, um, <clears throat> I'm going to just ask some some rather strange questions, really, just so that we get a better feel for who who you are. I was okay. going to ask you which restaurant you'd go to, but I think I know the answer now. It's, it's certainly not going to be a McDonald's or a Golden Corral. Um, but let me ask you about comedians. So... Jim Carrey or Adam Sandler, if you had to choose one? Um, I tend to really love Jim Carrey's face more. He he has a profoundly dynamic way of showing up and being present that uh, you somehow feel like his face opens up his whole world and invites you into it. And my book's face to face. I mean, obviously, the face is very important for me. So what he does comedically with his face, um, I think is probably, I would go in that direction. <laughs> so I'm, I'm with you. I've just recently rewatched Liar Liar and um, uh, I forget what it is now, The Mask, and they're, they're absolutely brilliant. The theme of that book, too, I mean, the theme of that movie, just I, one of the things I'm doing, I'm hoping to write a book on someday is just the nature of fear and the way it makes us liars. Yeah. And that's one of the movies that I go to on just the thematic dimension that uh, the fall at some level is fear coming to dominate our life. You know, why are you hiding, Adam? I was afraid. And so Jim Carrey in that movie, he gives a dimension of just the dynamic of what that relationally does in breaking it down. So he also philosophically, <laughs> I think he opens up things for me. So anyway, you just you, you trigger these thoughts for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, apart from Bart, which famous 19th or 20th century theologian, dead or alive, would you most like to sit down with and, and talk to? So it depends on you know who you call theologian. To say I really probably became a Christian mostly through the work of C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia. And so to say, I know for many people, it, it is 
it isn't the theological works of Lewis that become so important. It is often um, either the Chronicles or um, some of his other creative works, the Space Trilogy or something like that. So Lewis lived a very complicated life. I mean, his childhood was difficult. Um, his losses were huge. His relationship with joy um, was not easy. And yet there is something about Lewis that that breathed creativity and that was invitational. It was invitational to me. And so to be able to sit with him and to recognize um, he was somebody who grew up in a highly um, challenged world, became highly educated. Um, he never let it slow him down. And he saw the gift of writing as something to draw on what in many ways began with, you know, childhood delights, boxing, you know, this land that he invents that becomes something, even as an Oxford Don, that I think never went away. Um, and who he was as a person and the theology that he presents. And so Aslan as a Christ figure who's not a tame lion, who comes and transforms life and speaks in a way that for me were, were truly relational. I mean, I, I discovered the relationality of Jesus through Lewis's work. And so to be able to sit with Lewis and to just sense the brilliance of him, but also the playfulness of him, I think would be something that I would delight in. Very nice. Very nice answer. Now, to some closing questions. I'm, I'm aware, you know, Church Dogmatics Volume 1, Part 1, was published in, I think it was 1932, if I get that right. And part two of volume one was published in 1938. Now, obviously, these are momentous and turbulent times in European well, in world history. How do you think that affected Bart's goals, the mode of his presentation in Church Dogmatics volume one? Yeah, we we live in a complicated time too, which makes you know th this work important to really rethink. If you live in a world that's politically challenged, which you know obviously the issues of Nazi Germany and uh, the nature intellectually of you know what had become liberal theology, which was then becoming compliant to agendas that. They drove a nation's vision of becoming great in a way that lost the gospel. And so to say, for him to recognize something slipping away that people were so excited about, the human capacity to control history and to make a nation great, that he just was able to sit back because of his theological thinking and say, just a minute, there's one fewer Lord, and it's not Hitler, um, it's Jesus. And so the Barman Confession, you know, as a, you know, kind of a pinnacle of his work, which even today, uh, there are people reading it and asking about, you know, how, how did what Bart was saying in his context, even in these early years of the Church Dogmatics, how did what he say then, how does that speak even today? And again, it's the same issues of politics, religion, um, ideas of visions of grandeur, he could see because he understood the gospel in such a way that if we lose the gospel, we will collapse into something that is chaos for everyone. And he saw the chaos coming. So in a chaotic world, he saw the ordering personal life of the God who comes to restore life. 
as really what is the hope of humanity. And so as he begins to write the church dogmatics with really the echoes of a, a world at war, a world that's intellectually collapsing, that the people who had been his teachers were buying into something that they seemed to be blind to, that were missing what he saw to be the vitality of God, the vitality of what the church might be. All of that, I think, created a fire in his belly that meant, you know, I, I need to invite the church as profoundly as possible back to what it means to even understand life itself. And that all of the rest of this is just imitation. Um, there was a line in a play that I heard, saw Rachel Campbell in years ago in Dunedin, and the line stood out, I've seen the future and it is plastic. And for me, there's a sense, Karl Barth, he saw the future if, if they went, if the church and politics went in the direction they're going, it would be something like a plastic, human-made, synthetic, meaning human-made, future that would, would literally just create plastic Jesuses all over the place, and we would no longer hear the one who has spoken, who did create us, who intends that we live a life that is full of joy and freedom, and we could just list the fruit of the Spirit, both as particular persons, but also in the dynamic of our families in the dynamic of our communities, in the dynamic of our neighborhoods. And so Karl Barth writes as one who, who has seen the future as personal. I, I've seen the future and it's personal. That's the eschatology, the showing up of the God who intends the end to be this good outworking of the one who loves in freedom and invites us to that. And the imitation in all of its ways of attempting to subvert and bring the chaos. And so he writes in the midst of that tension of seeing the, the, the good and the true and the beautiful and seeing all of the, the falsity of what was being proposed in the world at that point. And it gave him a vigor in writing that I think allowed him to say the things that he did with a depth of, of understanding history. And again, they, they say, you know, those who don't understand history are doomed to repeat it. Um, he, with the help of, of Charlotte von Kirschbaum, had an awareness of this has gone wrong before. <laughs> and now is the time to speak. And we know the one who has spoken. So let this work be an echo of what we should have learned to this point by going back to the source, the artesian source, of the water of life and let that speak again and bring what the world needs today. That I think is the context of what he's doing as he begins to write CD1 and proceeds on from there. Wonderful. Now, obviously, some who will be listening will no doubt ask, um, you know, when are you going to talk about Charlotte? I'm not going to do that um, in this session, especially because we're, we're running out of time. Um, but I, I just wanted to ask you just a couple of more questions before um, I let you go. Maybe first, you know, what is the one thing you think is most often misunderstood about Bart? The thing that I find most often understood is that people think that when Bart takes on natural theology, that he's throwing out the natural world. The the task of natural theology for Karl Bart is to clarify 
that we must begin in our knowing process with the actuality of the God who has come, who speaks. And that if we, if we begin by simply saying, well, what makes sense to me about God or what should be, that whenever we appeal to what has made sense to us, what seems natural to us, we inevitably are going to read from our categories onto God and never actually hear the one who is living and speaking. Um, sometimes in a class, I'll just say, you know, I'd like a volunteer who we get to know. And I'm just begin by telling you all that I think about you without you telling me anything. It's like, okay, you're a woman and you appear to be this age and you appear to be this. And what I'm doing illustrating there is just me reading my categories onto a person. And I, so I say to the class then, so how well do I know this person? And they say, well, all you've done is read your observations onto her. And I say, so if I want to get to know this person, what do I need to do? And they say, well, you need to ask her some questions. You need to let her tell who she is. And for me, that's what Karl Barth's doing with his natural theology argument. He's saying, I'm not going to read onto this God all the questions or, well, I know this about you. You know, I've, I've known God before, people talking about God. And so salvation and all these terms, you know, yeah, 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 I know about all that. Say, you know, maybe I don't know any of those things. And maybe even to say you're a, a woman or that you're middle-aged will subvert me from actually hearing all the things that are true about the way that you are an amazing woman, unlike any woman I would have ever met. And to just say woman would have actually been such a chaotic reading because it has so many implications that I might read on that it would be like not hearing or seeing you at all. So if people could get that Karl Barth's church dogmatics is a profound corrective to let reality show up, and then we can come back and say, now that I recognize the way you are a woman, I can say you are an amazing woman. And I've learned that you, you give a sense of the dynamic of what a woman fully alive looks like in a way that I wish the other women in my life knew. Not that they would become like you, but that they would become like who they really are, discovering what it means to really be free the way that you are. And so when we get Bart's corrective, it really frees us of all the garbage we bring in, and it attunes us to be able to actually know the reality of what God, being the one who loves in freedom, does not only knowing God, but us becoming all that we might be in the face of that. Just a little thing like that, I think would be good. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So we've only got a few minutes left, but I two more questions. Yeah, are there any modern theological trends that, that trouble you? The modern theological trends that trouble me, um, well, I mean, the, to say, if we think in Trinitarian ways, we're dealing with the God who exists in a relationship, and so if we get over emphatic on either the life of the Spirit or the life of the person of Jesus, um, I've never seen anybody get over emphasizing the, the person of the Father. So, I mean, these are things that are, that, you know, that's something that's missing. But to say the nature of modern theological trends is that people seem to be looking more and more to what practice do we have in the church without doing the theological work of undergirding it. So where I live in the Northwest, there are about 50-some schools that teach theology at some level. The nature of the way that they're thinking, I don't know any of them that are really saying, what would it look like for us to ask the question, 
how do we, in this region that we live, think out of the person of Jesus showing up here and that we are walking with him? It tends to be, you know, what are the needs of the people and how do we do theology in such a way that we're meeting the needs of the people, which, I mean, that's just a reiteration of what Bart calls natural theology. <laughs> how do we listen to needs and meet those needs? When I go to the AAR, when I go to theological conferences, the themes that are brought out are often what you might call just contemporary issues in the life of the church or culture. And so the question, what is setting the agenda for our theological conversation? There, there are issues around you know, gender, sexuality, the roles of people in, in their cultural contexts. Um, all that to say is that the theology is being, being brought in as a secondary conversation partner rather than, than asking the question, um, as, as Jesus shows up as the one who speaks, how does this living Christ, who is the one who redeems and restores and heals, how does that Jesus do that work um, in the neighborhood, right? And how, does, how do we get eyes to see the things that are missing because Jesus is here instead of just taking what we think is missing and seeing how Jesus can fix those things for us? So I don't want to throw out the idea that there are practical outworkings of what's going on. I just want our, our theological attunement to be aligned in such a way that we are attentive listeners to Jesus first, what Bonhoeffer begins as Christ the center. All good theology begins in silence, but it's not an empty silence. It's a listening silence, right? And so I just think we need to, to not be those who speak so much in the first instance. We need to be theologically Attent attentive listeners. One of the tasks I do with my some of my clients sometimes is say, I'd like you to write a letter that is from Jesus to you or to somebody who you're concerned about. I want your listening to be listening to Jesus first and then see what comes out of that in speaking to the issues of the relationships that are challenging for you. And that that puts people in amaz an amazing place where they go, well, you know, I don't know what to say. And it's like, good. Just sit and listen and begin, dear, you know, whatever your name is, and then let, let the Spirit work and attune you to hearing what's going on in such a way that what you say isn't about you or what you need to do, but you're really letting the speaker be Jesus and that it's speaking to the situations that you're having to deal with. I think something like that in our theological thinking would turn theology around and we become much less concerned with what seem to be the hot spots for us. And we see the real issues of life as Jesus um, sees them, pointing out what's really important that needs the healing, the redemption, the fullness of life being brought, and the way that we may just need to be better people at throwing parties. You know, these people need to have some fun. Uh, you need to get out of your, your cold and stuffy churches or invite first graders to come up and talk about your stained glass windows and what they see to allow some life into this place, some air and breath. And so anyway, I think that if we start listening to Jesus in those kind of ways, the way that we reorient theology in ways that lets Jesus drive things and it speaks about life as we live it. One final question is, is who do you think will benefit from, from reading your book and the five volumes that follow? Who are you pitching this to and who do you think is going to benefit the most? So I, like you, am involved in reading groups. And so I'm just going, there are a lot of people these days 
who are starting to say, I'd love to understand Bart, but I read page one, chapter one, and I go, wow, this is this is hard stuff. So some of those are pastors. Some of those are people who are in churches, and they heard somebody give a quote by Karl Barth, and they say, I love that quote. I love the idea of free the freedom of God and the that if somehow theology doesn't make you joyful, that it's not doing what it's supposed to do. I love that idea. I just don't know how I get there. So I think that the title of the book, Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics for Everyone, it, it is for everyone who just has an inkling of interest. There must be more here for them to then be taken on a journey of, oh, there is more here. And for somebody who finds this book at Costco, if it ever made it Costco and just picks it up, uh, it may not be for them, but it may. If if they read, read and say, this is a book about Jesus, like, and then they see, in the word Jesus, we have it, we're about a person, and we're about relationships. They might go, well, I've never, I've never really thought of the name Jesus. I thought it's just that person that people talk about. But it, to say we're really engaged in a journey of discovering what it means to be persons in relationship. Huh, let me read the next chapter here. That it could even engage that. And of course, in the end, we haven't mentioned that there are there are these eight essays, which you've written one for my second book, that really say Karl Barth's church dogmatics aren't just about the church and theology. They're about the arts. They're about the sciences. They're about ordinary people. They're about mental health. That I think it is possible that those who can break out of the church dogmatics is just about getting theology right in the church and get transposed in saying the church dogmatics is about living the fullness of life. And there are some samples here of people who live these other disciplines. Now I see that this is an invitation to seeing through this lens of life that theology is about all of life, that there are a variety of people who in their own life journey are going to discover that that theology as portrayed by Karl Barth really is a, a science of discovery through personal relationship by the one who is personal and created us to live in all those in the fullness of what humanity can experience and that maybe we haven't even discovered yet disciplines, whole disciplines of what it means to be human and fully alive that the scientists just haven't quite gotten to, but Karl Barth opens the door in a way in these dogmatics. And so it might be a, somebody who's a teenager who just recognizes, you know, we've, we've never talked about this before. And they recognize, you know, God is bigger than I thought and more interested in life than I thought. I'm going to care more about what life is maybe about than just what be, can be contained in books though I may need the books to begin the conversation that opens the door. And hopefully this book series is that opening of the doors for people to go where they've never gone before. Wonderful. Um, now, I should mention, indeed, those essays. You've got authors like Douglas Campbell, Mike Habits, looking at systematic theology, or Julie Canlis, The Value of Church Dogmatics for Ordinary People, um, Andrew Torrance writing on science um, and lots of other names there. So please do um, check out Marty's fantastic book. You will enjoy reading it enormously. Um, so thank you so much for, for coming on to Unscript, Marty. 
It's very early in the morning for you. Chris, thank you so much for having me. It's a delight to be with you. You're fun incarnate too. I think of Chris Tilling and my mind just goes, fun incarnate. <laughs> that's, that's a compliment. Thank you. Well, every blessing to you and I hope you enjoyed this episode and until the next. You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.